J.J. Cooper here, another Baseball America podcast. Today is a special lockout edition of the podcast. I, I know some of you are probably hearing that and, and rushing to scramble to jump to the next podcast in your feed. And then I understand that. I know that lockout is not exactly a, uh, a moment that baseball fans will celebrate, but obviously it is important. It is the, the news of what is going on right now. And as such, Today, we have a special guest on the podcast. I talked with longtime labor lawyer, uh, Eugene Friedman, and I wanted to talk to an expert of this. I wanted to talk to someone who has an understanding of really what I would say is, is the very important, but also the very difficult to understand aspects of labor negotiations because there are a lot of aspects of this that are very much prescribed by law. He's a lawyer, I'm not, and that's useful to talk to a lawyer for something like this, that have to be followed, and how there's a language that is both important because these are the rights and responsibilities of both parties, both the owners and the players, but also these are the steps that lead to a settlement or agreement at some point, and these also, here are all the steps if the two sides do not come to an agreement. So it's really useful, I think, to talk to, to Eugene to get a sense of that, as, as I think I say in the intro to Eugene. Eugene has a, has, has a viewpoint on this. He is a labor lawyer, uh, and as such, I, I would say that, you know, that if you follow his Twitter feed, he's, he's pretty pro-player in this, but that's fine. That's, that's something I want to make sure that everyone understands, but at the same time, I think if you listen to the interview, what you will see is that he, as as lawyers often will do, he presents it in, I would say, a, a pretty even-handed manner, and I think there's a lot of very useful information uh, to help both you all, but also me, myself, understand what to look for as this lockout continues. Um, before we get to that, though, I did just kind of want to say about the lockout, and this is this is kind of my own personal uh, viewpoints, very much not my my viewpoints as a as a journalist, but but as a baseball fan, because obviously first and foremost, the reason that I think that pretty much any of us at Baseball America work at Baseball America is because we love baseball. Uh, this job that we do, which is great and hard and busy and all that at times, is a lot of fun if you love baseball. If you didn't love baseball. I don't know how fun and appealing it would be to work at Baseball America, but we do love baseball. I love baseball, and my baseball fandom goes back. I'm I'm a little older now. I'm middle aged, and it goes back to the uh, the the labor uh, negotiations and the, the strikes and the lockouts of the '80s and '90s, and and so you know I know there. I realize that there's a lot of people now who follow baseball for whom we have a lot of people on staff for whom the, the strike of 94-95 is kind of before their understanding or before they were following baseball. And the, the strikes and lockouts of the 80s is ancient history for them. And so I, I did just kind of want to share kind of one thing that I very much came to in the 80s and 90s, which was, okay, I'm going to follow it. I'm going to understand it. But at the same time, I very much came to the realization, you know what? 
I love baseball, I'm not going to get uh, derailed from my love of baseball because of labor negotiations. And I know that there are a lot of fans in the 80s and 90s who did. I, I actually have a friend of mine who, it was the strike of 94 that kind of was, was the last straw for him. And he kind of stopped being a baseball fan, effectively. Still may know who wins the World Series, but he really stopped closely following it. And, and again, that's your mileage may vary. There are some, oh, I understand. That's how you want to view it. Okay, everyone has the right to their own opinion. But for me... I love baseball. I love baseball at the high school level. I love it at the college level. I love the draft. I love July, you know, what used to be July 2, now January 15th of the international signing period. I love, uh, you know, the minors. I love the majors. I love baseball in Japan and Taiwan and Cuba. I love baseball. The Netherlands, honkball. I, I just love baseball. And as such, you know, I just, when there is these moments of, uh, of a lockout or a strike or whatever, it doesn't derail my love of baseball is the way I would describe it. And the other thing that I just would note with that is, is that also being middle-aged, I've also become to, I'm very much a realist at this point, baseball, Major League Baseball is a $10 billion industry, basically, roughly. And as such, it is not surprising to me that every now and then there are going to be uh, clear disagreements between the two sides who are battling, discussing, arguing over how to split a $10 billion pie. Um, yes, it is a sport. It is one that, that many of us, quote, will play for free, but... That doesn't also mean that it is not big business, because I would say that $10 billion is big business. And as such, the two sides are going to sometimes have some pretty clear disagreements on how to divide, how to approach, you know, how to share $10 billion. Because yes, while it is a sport, it is also a business. So those are just some very short, quick thoughts that I have as we sit here on day two of the uh, 2021 MLB lockout, which thankfully day two is also a long ways away from the start of the 2022 season. So before we go to Eugene Freeman, we'll have a quick message, a quick break, but then we'll be back to talk to labor lawyer Eugene Freeman about the myriad things that you should know about labor negotiations and the lockout. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back. And I am very excited to be joined by Eugene Friedman. Eugene Friedman is a union lawyer. He's counsel to the president of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. It's on the podcast today because he also, as you probably know if you're on Twitter, he also speaks uh, regularly about labor issues in baseball. But the thing I'm most important to talk to you, thank you for joining us today, Eugene. What I want to talk to you about is, is there, labor law is a very exact a very prescribed uh, specialty and one that understandably many of us are not nearly as well-versed in. Although with the uh, negotiations, I think a lot of us have become more well-versed in this than we would be in a normal year. But, but thank you for joining us, Eugene. But I, I guess I kind of would start with kind of the overarching question. What is, I'll ask the loaded question. What is something that as a labor lawyer what is a misconception that many have about the process of a collectively bargained agreement, the negotiations? Because I see you a lot of times pointing out a lot of these, but is there anything that comes to mind where it's like, I just wish that the public generally knew X? So JJ, thank you for having me on. Um, I've been a longtime reader of Baseball America, so I'm, I'm really happy to be able to join you. Uh, so yeah, there, there's actually a lot of things uh, that I think are misperceptions uh, that come up a lot, both in you know just the general public, but also in baseball writers, uh, that they use colloquial terms, perhaps, that actually have precise meanings in labor law uh, that are a bit frustrating. I could probably talk to you the entire podcast about various different things that that kind of tweak my my nerve. Uh, but you know, one of the ones that has come up quite frequently is the misuse of the term impasse. Um, impasse does not mean the parties haven't reached agreement. Uh, collective bargaining is a slow, long process. Uh, frequently, um, you know, in my experience, bargaining can take six to nine months even in an expedited process, meaning every day, uh, sometimes 12 hours a day, either in person or with your team and caucus developing or changing proposals, it can take three to four months. Um, and that's a lot of time. Um, to say that the parties are at impasse because they haven't reached agreement after exchanging one or two proposals, 
um, and meeting for you know an hour here and there. Uh, that's that's just a misuse of the term. And impasse not not only does it have a precise meaning in labor law, but it gives the parties specific rights uh, once they're at impasse. Uh, management gains the right to unilaterally impose a last best offer if the parties are truly at impasse. Uh, the parties right now are not at impasse. They're not even close to being at impasse. Um, and I can go through a lot of the details of that if you'd like. I mean, it's it's probably but, picky Yoon. But, but let me ask you that. Okay, the details of that, to get to an impasse, is that something that effectively, is that determined by the parties the two parties, or is that determined at that point? Usually, have you brought in? Is that a third party that is part of it? To before, you know, we've seen in the past in MLB labor negotiations where at some point there's been a federal mediator. It is an impasse, something that is that either side can describe or de de declare, or is that something that is actually generally a neutral or a neutralist third party is the one that essentially acknowledges that, okay, this has reached an impasse. The two sides are saying the same, you know, they've had, they both had the same position, I would assume, for months at that point, and there is no movement, I would assume, is, is what leads to an actual impasse. Right, so yeah, normally the process uh, works uh, where, you know, the parties are meeting, they're making proposals, they're making changes to their proposals. Uh, if they're basically both at the point where they're no longer making progress. Uh, they do, uh, through the process, uh, meet with a mediator from the Federal Mediation Conciliation Service. You can use a private mediator if you so wish. Um, and a lot of uh, long-term uh, collective bargaining relationships do sometimes use a private mediator. They may even use mediation arbitration as a dispute resolution mechanism to avoid a strike or a lockout, uh, but that's very rare in the private sector. Um, normally, they do go through the FMCS. Uh, the FMCS sends um, a mediator who's actually called a commissioner. Uh, in, in high profile cases, uh, they will send the head of the FMCS or the, the deputy um, chair, uh, and you know those those people, um, if you remember the, the football dispute, uh, probably about 10 years ago, George Cohen, mm -hmm. uh, who has a long history of uh, union side advocacy, but then became a mediator upon retirement, he was ultimately uh, named uh, by President Obama and confirmed by the Senate to head the FMCS. Uh, he actually mediated that dispute himself uh, personally. Um, and, uh, you know, th those high profile cases uh, in 1994, uh, President Clinton appointed uh, Bill Usury, who had been the uh, Secretary of Labor, uh, several presidents prior uh, as a mediator tr to try to broker the deal uh, between the Players Association and MLB. That was unsuccessful. Uh, the mediators don't really have um, a stick necessarily. Uh, they've got carrots that they try to uh, use to bring the parties together. Uh, they definitely have skills to bring the parties together. 
to, to try to break down whatever the disputes are between them and to try to help brainstorm potential solutions. Um, I worked with George on a number of occasions, uh, both before and after he was the head of the FMCS. And, you know, he had the ability to boil down any dispute to its core elements and then figure out if there was a way to get through it. Um, he wasn't unique, but he was definitely at the top of the game. Um, but there are other mediators who can do that as well. Um, you know, when, when they reach impasse, you know, it is a temporary state of affairs. Uh, it doesn't suspend or terminate the bargaining obligations under the National Labor Relations Act. The parties still have a duty to bargain in good faith, to reach agreement, uh, but it, as I said, it, it avails management with the ability to implement its last best offer. And it can do that um, at its own peril, uh, like Major League Baseball did in 1994, when it Correct. basically said, we're at impasse um, and we're going to implement a salary cap. The union filed an unfair labor practice charge uh, with the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB um, regional director who investigated it found uh, reasonable cause to go forward and requested a, a 10-J injunction under the law. Uh, then actually the board takes over um, and the regional director and general counsel's office pursues uh, the complaint to court rather than the union bringing the case to court. Uh, it's the board that actually brings the case. And, and in, in this case, the, the, um, both the NLRB regional director and Judge Sotomayor, who is now uh, Justice Sotomayor, found that uh, it was not an impasse. Uh, and it was because Major League Baseball had not uh, negotiated in good faith. And therefore, it was not able to unilaterally implement uh, its last best offer. Uh, so all that said, uh, impasse is a very technical term. It has very important uh, obligations and, and opportunities for the parties to engage in different aspects of economic warfare. And so it's not a term you want to throw around lightly. So you hit on a key thing also that I wanted to, to ask you about, which is you mentioned the obligations of the parties. Again, this is not something where we are just talking about two sides who are getting together and discussing whatever they want to discuss. Could you lay out like what are the op the obligations in a collectively bargained agreement of ownership and what are the obligations of, of labor in, in this case? Sure. The National Labor Relations Act, um, and I'm going to keep going back to that uh, because it is the law that governs the, uh, the private sector negotiations, uh, other than in the transportation sector where they're covered by a different law, the Railway Labor Act. But the National Labor Relations Act provides that both parties, uh, union and management, have to negotiate in good faith. Uh, it makes it an unfair labor practice for the parties to uh, fail to negotiate in good faith. Uh, and colloquially, colloquially, that's referred to as bad faith bargaining. Uh, but it actually, the, the um, unfair labor practice is failure to bargain in good faith. Um, so what that means is you have to meet uh, and make a good faith effort 
to reach agreement over all mandatory terms and conditions of employment. And mandatory terms of, and conditions of employment includes wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment. And I know it's strange to have the definition include itself almost, but uh, that's, that's what the law provides. And so those mandatory subjects are the things that the parties must negotiate over. And wages is obviously a very broad one. Uh, wages includes essentially all economic issues. So for, you know, most unions, it includes healthcare as well. Um, that's considered part of wages. It includes retirement. Uh, it includes any kind of monetary compensation, whether it's base salary, um, differentials for working nights, weekends. Um, it, it includes uh, overtime pay, if you're changing the overtime rules above and beyond the Fair Labor Standards Act, all of those things are wages. Uh, then you have hours, which are obviously the hours in the day. They're also uh, the setting of the work week. Uh, for the purposes of baseball, obviously, it's the setting of the schedule. Um, and then you have other terms and conditions of employment, which you know cover all the things that may take place in the workplace on a regular and ongoing basis that affect how an employee's relationship with the employer are. So if, for example, in baseball, travel is a major working condition. So it is a mandatory subject of bargaining. Um, uh, even meals, right? Meals could fall under other conditions of employment. It could also, if you're talking about a per diem or a meal allowance, it could fall under wages. Uh, so that's a, a mandatory subject of bargaining. So really, um, those mandatory subjects are very broad. There are also permissive subjects of bargaining. Um, they're probably not worth really discussing because in the private sector, there are very few things that are permissive um, that, are, that are always included in CBAs. Um, and then you have uh, illegal subjects of bargaining, which would be something like, uh, we're going to pay um, African-American workers less than we're going to pay white workers. Now, that might be something that was in a collective bargaining agreement in, you know, the 1920s before the act, um, right. you know, and before discrimination laws, uh, but that's, that's now an illegal subject of bargaining. You couldn't put that in a CBA. Okay, so that lays out kind of the responsibilities that both sides have. The other thing that I think that is understandably difficult for anyone who's not directly involved in this to fully understand is how this works. Like you said, this is something that is not, a lot of times I think it's, it's kind of viewed as, oh, there was a meeting and we, let's read the tea leaves on how long the meeting was today. But, but those are kind of, the, 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 big, the big meetings can also kind of be just a part of, the overall negotiations from what I understand as well. So how does, when you have two sides, you have a collectively bargained agreement, especially ones that expired. Again, I'm not asking you to say, this is how the MLB, MLBPA will go. That's not what we're asking. But overall, like what is the normal process for how you get from two sides who may seem far apart to the point where there's an agreement and you know a collective bargain agreement for for years to come. Sure. So, you know, one of the one of the things I think that's that's important to consider here is that unlike buying a car, 
where you have, you know, 20 car dealerships in your city that you could go to. And if you don't like how one of them is dealing with you, you can go to another. In labor relations, you can't go to another. Like that relationship is fixed. Um, and you can either make it a good relationship or a bad relationship. You have that choice. Um, so, you know, the National Labor Relations Board or the National Mediation Board in the case of railway labor or the Federal Labor Relations Authority in, in the case of, of federal employees um, or various state uh, boards of uh, labor or specific bodies, they certify an exclusive bargaining representative. That representative is who the employer must go to to negotiate those mandatory subjects. They can't go to individual employees once there is an exclusive representative certified by an appropriate body. Now, that, that then means that they can't get away from each other, right? They have to get a deal. Now, if they, like I said, if they reach impasse, you know, perhaps management can unilaterally implement, uh, but, but that's, that's very rare. Uh, in most cases, the parties sit down and figure out how large they want their bargaining teams to be, how often and where they're going to meet. Uh, there's an obligation in the duty to bargain in good faith uh, to meet uh, at mutually agreeable times and locations. Uh, so, you know, they have to kind of lay out a schedule. The commissioner today said that they don't have any meetings presently scheduled, but they still have an obligation to meet. Uh, and so one party's going to say, hey, do you want to get together on these days in this city? Uh, the other party's going to confer with their team, see if it works, and then they're going to get together and meet. Um, you know, in my experience, and I, I've negotiated 10 uh, term collective bargaining agreements, I've negotiated countless midterm agreements, but those, those are obviously lesser in scope and scale. Uh, but for those 10, you know, term agreements, um, and, and you can think of that as, you know, for example, the 2016 uh, agreement between Major League Baseball and the Players Association, which they call the Master Agreement, which of course then includes not just the articles of the agreement, the appendices, uh, the the attachments, all the side agreements, those which, all which take months. Yes, which, which yes. are not which are not the other part that I think that I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that often is not understood. No one will actually know. When the two sides come together and say, we have an agreement, they'll have an agreement, but that still means that there are literally probably months of lawyers from the two sides putting uh, bytes to paper at this point, it's all digital, bytes to, you know, to the screen to flesh out what that actually means, right? Like that, you don't have all that lined up when you come to an agreement, that's still to come. Right. So yeah, you start out by scheduling, right? And, and working through some of those preliminary matters, you know, normally the parties have equal numbers. They have rules about things like no audio or video recording of the bargaining sessions, things, things like that, just general rules of practice uh, that they agree on. And, you know, then, you know, you get together, um, frequently you exchange the list of things that you don't want to change. Uh, because if neither party wants to change something, let's say it's the travel rules, um, you know, then you can just sign off on that right away. 
Um, you know, it, it's relatively easy. It's low hanging fruit. And you knock all of those things out of the way that both parties think are working. Um, and, you know, that can take time because you first need to get your team together to go through the entirety of the contract, figure out what you don't have a problem with, um, and then segregate those from those things you do have a problem with. And it, generally, are we talking about this? This is the parts of it that you're essentially both sides are good with the status quo. Like, is that That's what we're right. talking about here? Is it yes. Like we're taking the last CBA and, okay, we agree that section whatever, and you also agree that section whatever we're both good with it. We both sign off on it. Great. We don't have to negotiate that moving on. Is that what you're exactly. kind of describing? That is, that is, that is a perfect description. Um, then, you know, the parties are going to have their issues where they want a minor change. Um, and, you know, they may introduce all of those proposals simultaneously uh, it varies bargaining session to bargaining session, how you do it. You may, you know, not even be prepared when you first meet to talk about pay. Um, so you don't even discuss it. Um, and, you know, you walk the other side through your proposals. Some of them are going to be um, things that both parties have the same concern about and they both want to change. Some are going to be things that are uh, unique to one party. Um, and then you, you discuss them. Um, and there's no rhyme or reason necessarily to the order in which you discuss them. It's basically when both parties are ready to discuss that issue. Uh, so, you know, you may go back and spend more time in caucus discussing an issue than you do in person. Um, you know, sometimes those meetings in caucus are the harder ones because you're trying to convince your team that either one, we don't need to change it, or two, we have to present a proposal that has a reasonable opportunity for the other side to agree to. If you propose something that there's zero chance of acceptance, and I'll, I'll give an example of that in, in these negotiations. The, the first leaked proposal from management on the competitive balance tax was to reduce the threshold. Maury, uh, Maury Brown has, has done a lot of uh, reporting on the, uh, on the income, the revenues created by the television deals. Um, he, and I don't know the exact figures, but it's an approximately 30% increase um, in television revenue beginning in the 2022 season. To say that we're going to re reduce the thresholds and the competitive balance tax had zero chance of acceptance. Right. I would have hoped that the relationship between the parties was sufficiently advanced that they wouldn't propose something that has zero chance of acceptance. But unfortunately, that's what they proposed. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time outside observers will look at proposals and say, well, why don't they just split the difference? Well, when one side is saying, let's reduce it, and the other side is saying, let's increasing it, splitting the difference is not really necessarily a fair resolution. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that, that um, it wasn't until more recent proposals, and I, I haven't obviously seen the proposals themselves, uh, that management was even making proposals that, that had even a nugget that the, that the uh, Players Association could accept. Um, 
you know, the first proposal, uh, it's been reported, had that 29 and a half age in it. Um, the players uh, countered with a proposal of five years or 29 and a half, whichever comes sooner. Now, I saw that as a little bit cynical uh, because, you know, that proposal specifically is saying, hey, we'll give you what you want, but you have to also give us what we want. And it's whichever is sooner. Obviously, the players want it to be five years. Five years for old, you know, players who come up later is going to be after 29 and a half. So, you know, from management's perspective, it really doesn't make sense to accept that either. Um, but, you know, you have these give and take uh, on all of these issues. And the economic issues are all intertwined. You can't really deal with them one at a time and sign off on them like you can on some of the work rules issues. The work rules issues are all potentially in a vacuum, you know, whether it's the grievance procedure um, or the disciplinary article or things like that. They're kind of things that you can deal with as one-offs or two-offs. You can put two together and say, you know, here's our package on these two issues. But with pay uh, and other compensation-related issues, which includes the revenue sharing, which includes the competitive balance tax, which includes, you know, when free agency begins, when arbitration begins, all of those things are intertwined. And so when, when you read about these proposals, you have to understand that even though the parties are sometimes proposing things similar, they can't sign off on them as one-offs because they're all part of this larger package. And that's where there's obviously a massive complexity to this because the intertwinedness of that means you may think it, it, from the outside, it may seem like, okay, there's progress being made. The two sides are now discussing the X, but like you said, if, if the two sides are discussing that, but they haven't agreed to this other core issue, I, I, I then all of a sudden they actually may not, they can even come to agreement on that, but if they can't agree on this other core issue, then they haven't gotten to that step down the road yet because if they haven't agreed to this other aspect, then all of that's moot until they come to, because there is an interconnectedness between this and this and this. And I, I, as I understand it, it may be that, okay, the players made this proposal and the owners agreed to this aspect of it. Oh, great. The two sides have come to agreement. No, no, no. The, they've agreed to that aspect. If the players agree to this, the players don't agree to this, then all of a sudden the owner's agreement to this or the player's agreement to this is irrelevant until you come to solutions and agreements on these other issues. And, and that's where this obviously gets very complex is, is because when you're talking about the wages and the overarching of compensation, that's an incredibly complex issue. And, and that's where, so I will ask this, like I, I try to keep it more broader than the, the specifics of, of the MLB negotiations, but one that does stand out here is, is that is why it seems like as a general rule, there is a predisposition to changing you're never going to start blank sheet of paper, I would say. Not, I should say never, but rarely, because once you do that, it. I have to imagine it becomes even more complicated to try to come to an agreement 
rather than saying, okay, this is the aspect of the status quo agreement, the previous agreement that we could agree to, and you could agree to this. And so now how do we tweak it around the edges rather than, oh, let's blow up the current system and start over. That's, I would imagine in a negotiation that would be very difficult to do. Yes, um, absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of the reporting on this, um, because the reporters are used to, you know, negotiations over individual player salaries, where there's not a lot of details to it. I mean, there's, there's a structure within the uniform player contract. Uh, they negotiate the pay. They may associate, uh, negotiate things like a no trade clause or, or you know, a few ancillary issues. Mm -hmm but they're not negotiating so many pieces to a puzzle. Uh, and so it doesn't come together quickly, as you said. Uh, I've been in negotiations that have taken as long as nine months uh, for an, an, a, an agreement that is not from scratch. Um, I'll give you an example on, on pay, on how we negotiate pay. And, and um, I think it, it carries over in this case. Um, we have a you know, I, I know you introduced me as, as uh, working for the Air Traffic Controllers Union. Um, we have a, a pay system that's based on complexity and volume. So the more complex an airspace is, the higher volume of traffic, uh, the higher pay a controller is going to make. And that's for their building. It's not how mm -hmm. many airplanes an individual controller talks to. It's how many airplanes their building talks to. Um, and, and the operations. The, yeah, the New York corridor is going to be a little different than working, you know, out somewhere in the West where, you know, you're working the Utah, Nevada, places like that, I would imagine. Yes, yes. Although Las Vegas is a very uh, busy tower, it's not as quite as complex, although they do have mountainous terrain. But yeah, I, rather than going on. Oh, wait, tangent, by the yeah. way, I'm, I'm, I'm working really hard not to hijack this and make it an aviation podcast. I will use my, I will use my discipline to keep this baseball focus, but I'm sorry, continue. Yes. So, so, um, so we, we try to maintain that complexity formula in future negotiations. We might have a few changes around the edges, but we don't want to start from scratch and figure out a new program because it took well over a year to develop the initial program internally for our first proposal. And now it's been in place for, for two decades or, or actually a little longer. Um, it's been changed over the years. There have been some slight modifications. Every collective bargaining agreement we, we may you know, tweak it here and there, but we're not going to change the basics of the formula. And, you know, as part of the negotiations, we ask for data on all aspects of pay. So not just everybody's base salary, but how much overtime they worked, how much Sunday pay, how much night differential, um, how much uh, of other fringe benefits they may have received. Um, and then, you know, based on the proposal, that management gives us, as well as the proposal that we draft, we model that out. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a rather large Excel file, but we can do that in an Excel file. I imagine that Major League Baseball is using economists to do their modeling. And, and the reason I say that is because they have so many pieces to that puzzle uh, regarding both revenue, revenue sharing, 
and the tax, uh, the competitive balance tax, as well as then the issues related to um, individual players, minimum salaries, uh, arbitration, the effects on arbitration of any changes. Um, you know, those type of things are, are the things that, because there are so many pieces of it, you really need to model it correctly to understand how what the effects are going to be. And I think what happened in the last negotiations was the Players Association may not have modeled some of the changes they agreed to appropriately. Um, and that led to some unintended consequences on their side. Um, you know, historically, uh, at least, you know, in the past few decades since the, the 94, 95 unfair labor practice strike, uh, there were, uh, you know, between, I think I've read 56 to 60 percent, uh, excuse me, about 50, 52 to 56 percent had been going to the players in the last Centers of total, years, total revenue. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I should have been a little more specific there. But in the past um, decade, it has shifted and it's more between 40 uh, and 44 percent. So it's it's almost flip flopped in terms of who's getting the lion's share of the revenue and to and obviously the revenue has increased considerably in that time period. So you'll see salaries increase considerably in that time. But at the same time, less of the revenue is going towards the players. And I know that the players don't want those unintended consequences this time. So I assume that they are modeling things a little more closely than they did in the last negotiations. Okay. I, I don't want to take too much of your time. We, there's a lot that we can still go into, but I will ask you one, which again, I, I want to say, like, I try to cover this as just basically as factually can. It is fine for you to have opinion. Again, you are. And so I want, I just want to say this to acknowledge, I'm asking you a question here that basically I'm not asking you to speak for the players association in any way, but you are involved. You understand these kind of ramifications. You just laid out some of this, which is one of the things that I would ask with that is, is, is that when you said about the modeling, and that is a key part of this, there is a significance of, of, the complexity of modeling this out and understanding the ramifications of what is X going to mean for compensation four years down the road is very complex. Um, the, the difference that has been consistent, and I would say is, is really kind of a core MLBPA, Players Association principle, has been the value of the free market. They have been adamant Time and time again, I, you hear from fans all the time, oh, why don't they have a salary cap like other sports? And MLBPA has been consistent that a salary cap restricts the free market. They think the free market, free agency is the best way to operate as a system. I will ask, the, again, just to, I will ask the question. The simplest way, if, if I was looking at this from the MLBPA perspective, the maybe potentially simplest way, which the, we could get into the complexity of what is defined as revenue. And I will say just as an aside, there is a complexity to what constitutes baseball revenue that is part of the calculations we're talking about. 
And now as we have teams that own the real estate around the ballpark, which is ancillary revenue in some ways, because, okay, you own a restaurant or a theater or whatever, that's not baseball revenue in some ways, but at the same time, it also is you've created an entertainment district that is deriving its value in some ways because of the baseball stadium that also provides a ready, again, that's the complexity we don't need to go down. But the simplest model for this would be if you said, okay, like some other sports do, where NBA players get X percentage of total revenue. From a, I, I am asking you this from a, if you were looking at it from the player's perspective, what would be the danger for them of shifting to a, we agree to basically, we agree to some of these other things like a cap and a floor or whatever, but with it, the guarantee that instead of it being that as they have over the last decade plus, they've seen their share of total revenue go down, essentially it would ensure them a, a percentage of revenue in per, you know, in, until the end of the next CBA. I think the transition is the hardest part um, because obviously, you know, they would have to negotiate with any ceiling, there would be a floor. Um, mm -hmm. And how do you implement a floor on a team like the Orioles right now, who has a commitment of $28 million. Uh, the Pirates who have a commitment of, I don't know, $35 million next year. Uh, you know, there are some teams that are so far out of the realm of a league minimum that the question becomes, how do you divide up the additional revenues in a fair and equitable manner? Um, that's, that's quite complex. Um, it, it really goes back to your, your prior statement about, you know, starting from a white sheet and, you know, creating something new versus making changes to what's already there. Um, and, you know, the other thing, and I, I probably should mention this, you know, in collective bargaining, because that relationship lasts permanently, essentially. And there's no way for Major League Baseball to get out of this. I mean, they've tried for decades. And I think, you know, after the 94-95 strike, they stopped trying to break the union. Uh, they realized it wasn't going to happen. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're in this relationship permanently. So what the parties can do is to make incremental changes, each CBA. And, you know, move things in a direction and have a long-term plan. Um, it's much harder to, to do that white sheet and say, okay, now we're going to implement um, a, let's say, $220 million salary cap um, that also includes a salary minimum that is, you know, 80% of the cap or, or whatever, mm -hmm. what have you. It's just, it's just really complicated to get there. Uh, what they can do is, is create um, incremental changes that get them to where they want to be ultimately. Um, you know, Major League Baseball has put on the table, really, I think, two things they really want out of this CBA. 
Uh, one is increased playoffs. And the Players Association seems like, you know, in the latest reported proposals, that as part of a global package, they'd be okay with that. Recognizing that teams are going to make significantly higher revenue with more playoffs. Um, and that's, of course, due to TV contracts that will be negotiated with the networks. Um, the other thing that, that MLB seems to want is the reestablishment of a competitive balance tax. The current CBA, or the CBA that expired yesterday, um, had a sunset provision. It said that at the end of the uh, championship season, the competitive balance tax sunsets. It expires. It's, it is actually not in effect right now. So the fact key that point the Mets, that it's been lost right now, it's assumed that it's going to continue, but key point, it is not in effect right now. That's right. So the, the Mets and their, their commitments, I think are now over $230 million uh, for 2022. You know, that commitment level is above the, the prior $210 million uh, competitive balance tax threshold, but there is no threshold right now. Um, and I think from that perspective, part of the lockout is to freeze the teams that want to operate above and beyond that threshold. Um, the Mets can't sign anybody else. They can't decide, you know what, on top of the players we signed, we also want Carlos Correa. We're just going to throw caution to the wind. We've got enough money. We've got enough revenue. We're going to we're going to sign him also. They can't do that. They're now frozen. The Dodgers are frozen. You know, uh, the the other teams that were at or near the threshold are frozen. So it it the lockout to an extent locks those teams out of taking action. Not just locks the players out of signing but it locks the teams out of signing them uh, in this period when there is no threshold. And, you know, the, the reason behind that is the threshold obviously has an effect on how teams behave. There were three or four teams that their total commitments last year were within, I think, $5 million of the threshold. Um, and there were two teams that were over. And there were a few more teams that were within $10 million of the threshold. And then there were the teams that were, you know, more in the middle of the road. Uh, and, and then there were a lot of teams that just spent nearly nothing on players. Um, management knows uh, that, that that provision changes GM and owner behavior. And so they want it back. Now, I don't think in any way that the union is going to say, we don't want it at all because they've even made proposals already to put a new threshold in, but as part of an overall package. It's a big ticket item for management. It's also a big ticket item for the union not to have it because they also know that it reduces expenditures. Uh, the Yankees are, are one of the teams that you know reduced their payroll to get under the threshold. The reason they did that was because of the escalating you know, uh, tax liabilities for multiple years above. But the Yankees are, are one of the teams where their salary as a percentage of revenue has gone down precipitously in the last decade. The Yankees drive the market. The Yankees, the Dodgers, probably are the two teams with almost unlimited resources. 
if they're stopping at or near that threshold, it retards player salaries across the board. And the Players Association knows that. Uh, so even them putting on the table that they would agree to a threshold again, even if it's a increased threshold that increases annually at a certain rate, that in and of itself um, is, I think, a good indication that the parties aren't as far away from an agreement as you know has been reported by many, or that MLB you know purports we're so far away we had to lock them out in order to you know move them towards agreement. I don't think that's true. I think that the parties are making progress. Uh, they're making progress on the big issues. Uh, so those are the two major league baseball issues. And the, the Players Association issues are more compensation for younger players, faster free agency. So those, those are the places that they're going to make a deal. Um, and I think there's ample opportunity to reach a deal. I don't know all of the details. I don't have any inside sources. You know, I react to... Uh, the, the key uh, national writers when they put out their stories, uh, just like every other fan. Um, nobody gives me the inside scoop on the proposals. Uh, so I have to interpret them, you know, second or third hand. Uh, but, you know, I think that when they're talking about things that are similar, like increasing the playoffs, like reinstating a threshold, they're, they're actually making considerable progress. And Okay, so I'll end it with that, which is with a process like this, there's a reason that CBAs expire in the middle of the offseason or early in the offseason and not June 30th um, for situations like this. You seem somewhat, like I said, you seem a little more optimistic than most. And again, let's be clear, you're following it like, like many of us are as an interested, not, it, you made it clear. You're not saying I have this inside information of how this, but do you feel, again, do you, is your, is your inclination that you think that this will be resolved at this rate? You know, it is possible this will be resolved without this bleeding into spring training, uh, you know, or is that going too far for, you know, from what you, but again, I just, when you said that optimism, that struck me that you see that, okay, if there's, if, if the players are still agreeing that there would be a CBT, that is a key component because if they were adamant that there wasn't a CBT and the owners were adamant that there is a CBT, that would be a, a very core issue for the two sides to be at, at, at odds on. But is that, I mean, it does seem like, though, that also these core compensation issues, these core service time issues do seem very complex and very difficult to me because it, there, there seems like there's one other aspect of this, which is that between the two sides, there's also a disagreement over what constitutes competitiveness and the window of competitiveness. And to me, like if this did stretch into March or beyond, that would be to me kind of where there's the likelihood of, uh, of a significant hurdle. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say the timeline that I would expect uh, the parties to reach a deal. I know that they will reach a deal. Um, they have to reach a deal. There's too much 
at risk for both sides uh, to not. And that's the only kind of way I'm going to I'm going to use the phrase both sides. Uh, there's too much at risk for everyone involved um, to not reach an agreement. That said, management in baseball, um, you know, they received the majority of their income, as you mentioned, in August, September, and then really in October. The, the national TV contracts pay out the bulk of that money in October. And so although they'll, the, the teams with significant, uh, and, and they're all significant to some degree, but the, the really large um, receipts from gate and the really large uh, local uh, television contracts, regional sports network deals, those teams will lose the most during the season. But the, every team loses big uh, should they miss the playoffs. And we really saw that with Major League Baseball in 2020 being willing to push basically the season down to nearly nothing. You know, they, they didn't care if they had a regular season as long as they had a playoffs because that's where they were going to make money when they didn't have any gate. Now, the Dodgers make a lot of money at the gate and they have a tremendous regional sports network uh, compensation package. Other teams have lesser amounts, but they're very significant. Those teams that bring in 3 million fans are going to be really upset if they miss games. The Orioles might not care. I mean, they were, <laughs> I'm, I'm a full disclosure, I'm an Orioles fan. Um, but I, I went to a game, it was generously 12,000 fans, generously. Um, you know, I, I question whether they even want to fill that park right now. Um, I think right now they're just hoarding money for, for future investments, should they ever come. Uh, but the, you know, the, the idea that the, the, you know, the larger revenue teams would want to miss games early in the season, I, I think that they're not going to want to. Uh, so there's going to be pressure on both parties to reach an agreement by really early March. Um, you know, they can miss a few weeks of the season. They can push back spring training a little bit. But once you start pushing it back considerably and you start losing out on gate revenue and regional sports network revenue, that's when the teams get hurt. Um, and so they're going to want to get that uh, at least you know, the higher revenue teams. Now, the, the lower revenue teams probably have a different interest. Um, you know, they share some of that gate. Uh, they don't share the regional sports network income. Um, who knows what their real interests are? It may just be profit over anything else. Um, and, you know, their real loss would come for the loss of the playoffs. Uh, and that's when the leverage shifts. Uh, but the players don't get paid until opening day. So the fewer games in the regular season, that they see, uh, the that's where the leverage hits them in terms of a lockout. Even losing spring training time doesn't necessarily hurt the players financially. It may hurt them in terms of preparation. It may hurt them in terms of their ability to make it through a full season, um, you know, injury-free or fatigue-free. I, I, I don't know if you could say that about any professional athlete. They're all injured right. a little bit at some point. They're all fatigued a lot, but 
you know, the, those peak levels of fatigue and the injuries that take them off the field. Um, you know, they, they want spring training to, to help them prepare to avoid that. Um, but, you know, if they miss opening day, they're going to be missing a paycheck. And that's when they start to feel the pressure. So right now, you know, I don't know that too much has changed uh, other than those, those players who are free agents uh, are feeling a little pressure because they don't know what their future is. And those owners who want to spend and sign the Carlos Correa's uh, and others who are free agents, you know, they feel the pressure that we need to make our team more competitive if they want to. The, the owners who, who don't want to spend, they're happy not spending. But, well, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I really do appreciate the insights and the expertise. Again, we wanted to kind of help under help the, the fan who's following this, who wants to follow this and be more informed as they follow this. I really appreciate helping explain that this, again, this is not, there are, there are very prescribed roles here. There are very prescribed language. There are very prescribed responsibilities here. And that's important because that is the, that is the realm that, that, that is the rules of, of, of what is going on here. And so Eugene, thank you for that. Thank you for your time. And thank you for joining us here on the Baseball America podcast. Thanks, JJ. I appreciate the, the time and the opportunity to help educate uh, your readers and listeners. And, uh, you know, feel free to reach out any other time. Thank you. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.